If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately could never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation, strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. Secretary of War Henry Stimson closely monitored the telephone. He was in Potsdam, Germany, expecting news that could change the outcome of the war in Japan. It was the middle of July 1945, and the Axis powers in Germany had surrendered two months earlier. But the Japanese were fighting till the bloody end. When the phone finally rang, it brought a sense of relief chased with a sense of dread. The nuclear test was a success. He could go ahead with his plans. The board was set, and he had his instructions to make the next move. While Stimson had his allegiances to the United States, he was also loyal to another group, the Council on Foreign Relations. Their members include some of the most powerful men in the history of the United States, including lawyers, bankers, industry leaders, and heads of state. And while the council has had a hand in government decisions going back to the First World War, they weren't resting on their laurels in 1945. They were using World War II to change the world. After the dust settled, they would be on top.
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second episode on the Council on Foreign Relations a nearly 100-year-old think tank based in New York City. They're responsible for crafting some of the most divisive policies in United States history, from the shadows, and later, from the presidency itself. Last week, we explored the Council's formation and how they placed themselves in a position of power near the end of World War II. This week, we're discussing the Council's nearly impossible reach in politics, big business, and the media after the end of World War II. Some have accused the Council of using the U.S. government to create a new world order. Today, we'll investigate how accurate that accusation is. The modern-day Council on Foreign Relations was founded in 1921 from the ashes of a study group known as the Inquiry, who had worked to create the League of Nations during World War I. Two decades later, in 1939, President Roosevelt contacted the Council to help create a study group very similar to the Inquiry and to help him plan strategies for World War II. This new group was known as the War and Peace Studies, but it was essentially just a government-funded branch of the Council on Foreign Relations. In 1940, Roosevelt recruited a founding Council member, Henry Stimson, to be his Secretary of War. From that moment, the Council on Foreign Relations became inextricably linked to the government. Stimson didn't go into government service alone. He took John McCloy with him. McCloy was a young, valued member of the Council, and he soon became a trusted advisor of President Roosevelt. McCloy was tasked with filling out the president's cabinet. The United States was at war, and they needed the best men. John McCloy got to choose who they were. He picked members of the Council on Foreign Relations. In less than 20 years since their founding, the Council had members throughout the federal government, a single phone call away from the President of the United States. During the Roosevelt administration, they could shape U.S. policy in any way that they liked. They had one clear goal in mind. The Council had been a key part of creating the League of Nations at the end of World War I, but the institution was weak as a result of the United States' refusal to join. By the time World War II rolled around, it had been all but abandoned. Members of the Council saw the war as the result of the United States' failure to enter the world stage, and they wouldn't let it happen again. By 1943, the League of Nations' successor was conceived. The United Nations was officially the brainchild of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, but the idea was planted in his head by key cabinet members who were part of the Council. The UN's first purpose was to signal solidarity against the Axis powers. It was an initial agreement signed by the main four allied countries, the US, the UK, the Soviet Union, and China. This agreement was a monumental step that would lay the groundwork for things to come, but was far from being completed. FDR saw the United Nations as a way to ensure future world peace, 
But before that could be achieved, the war needed to end. And Secretary of War Henry Stimson had a plan. In addition to putting a bug in Roosevelt's ear about the UN, Stimson was personally responsible for a secretive project, one only a handful of government officials knew of. Upon its completion, it would bring about a swift end to the war. He was overseeing the Manhattan Project, and undertaking that would ultimately lead to the atomic bomb. Not only had the founding members of the Council on Foreign Relations quickly established a new organization to oversee the world's governments, but now they had control of the atomic bomb, which they needed to keep everyone in line. All hidden behind the mask of the good old USA. Of course, it's possible Stimson was putting his country before his secret society, but that's just another one of the many secrets he kept. Throughout most of the Manhattan Project, he didn't even tell other cabinet members, like Vice President Truman. Truman only discovered the project on April 12, 1945, the day President Roosevelt died, and he was sworn in as commander-in-chief himself. By that point, the bomb was nearly operational, and the scientists were only two months away from testing it. The war in Europe was coming to an end, and on May 7, 1945, Germany signed a peace treaty in the presence of Supreme Allied Commander Dwight D. Eisenhower. With Germany placated, the United States directed all of their forces toward Japan. President Truman and his generals had a difficult decision to make. Would they march all the way into Tokyo, or would they use their new weapon? It's hard to say if the Council on Foreign Relations had any power over this decision, but Truman inherited Roosevelt's cabinet. New to his office, he may have leaned on them for guidance. Either way, no member of the Council on Foreign Relations stopped the U.S. from dropping the bomb. And to be clear, they did have that kind of power. It's obvious from the next decision Harry Stimson made. In the summer of 1945, the U.S. planned on bombing two different cities, the first would be Hiroshima, but the second city was up for debate. Several generals thought it would send a loud message to bomb the historic city of Kyoto, home to hundreds of temples and landmarks. Stimson was aghast. He had visited Kyoto on his honeymoon and couldn't bear to see all of that history lost. So Stimson talked Truman into changing his mind. On August 6, 1945, the first bomb landed on Hiroshima, killing tens of thousands. Sadly, the Japanese Empire didn't show any signs of surrender. So, the other strike went ahead. On August 9, 1945, a plane took off from the island of Tinian and headed toward Japan. At 11.01 a.m., the large B-52 found its target and dropped its payload. Nagasaki was incinerated. Kyoto was spared, but 80,000 others were killed as a direct result of Stimson's lobbying. The Japanese surrendered five days later on August 15, 1945. The war came to an end under the guidance of a key council member. The council had gotten exactly what they wanted, but that was only step one of their goals. Now, the world could start over with step two, the United Nations. 
By the end of the war, the United Nations now had 25 different nations on board. It was an update of the League of Nations, and this time the United States had a seat at the table. It also signaled the beginning of a new international landscape. While the League required there be a consensus for anything to be passed, the UN only required a simple majority. With the new form of world government successfully set up, members of the council who'd spent years in government positions during the war trickled back into civilian life. Henry Stimson retired, but continued to be an active member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He may have taught a whole new generation of council members how to navigate life in government service. John McCloy, who advised FDR after Stimson recruited him, was named the head of the newly formed World Bank, an organization directly tied to the United Nations. It's an international bank that helps poorer or developing countries by giving them access to vast amounts of cash in the form of loans. And yet another avenue for the council members to have a say in how the world was remade after the war. After helping to create the World Bank, the council was now an integral part of it, as were their business interests. However, the post-war world brought with it its own unique set of challenges. There were now two main power players on the world stage, the United States and the Soviet Union. The Council reached out to the Russian embassy to see if any of their scholars would be interested in working together on a new study. But the Soviets refused, a move that steered the Council in a different direction. Forging ahead on their own, the Council assigned a young member named George Franklin to come up with a report. In the spring of 1946, he began poring over historical documents and books on political theory to find what he believed would be the correct next step for the United States. The pressure on Franklin was immense. How could he possibly come up with a solution for a problem that was only just beginning to develop and was bound to evolve? The implications of the changing world were massive. After four long months of research, he finished his study and showed his results to the council. Franklin contended that the best way forward was to be involved with the Soviets, to acknowledge their differences and work together for a better global future. However, this sentiment was hard to stomach in the wake of British Prime Minister Winston Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech just months earlier. In it, Churchill argued that the only way to keep the Soviet Union at bay was a policy of isolation. An ideological chasm formed inside the walls of the Council. Those who thought it would be beneficial to the United States to work with the Russians, and those who thought they could block the spread of communism by refusing all contact with the USSR. Here, the pragmatism of the businessmen and the optimism of the scholars clashed. The intellectuals wanted the bright future of peaceful international relations that they had been planning and working towards for decades. But the businessmen saw the Soviets' communist ideology as a problem. Working with them could be bad for business. And so, the goals of the Council transformed with its majority. The businessmen had significantly more influence and successfully pushed their ideas forward using one of the Council's many resources, their magazine, Foreign Affairs. It was a move that completely changed the course of the United States and resulted in the deaths of millions.
Coming up, the Council controls the United States' Cold War policy and changes the global landscape in Vietnam. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Now back to the story. As World War II ended and the Cold War began, the Council on Foreign Relations was determined to maintain its power. They'd met their goal of forming a world government with the United Nations, but now the newer business-minded membership had fresh goals to pursue. Their magazine, Foreign Affairs, was edited by a man named Hamilton Fish Armstrong. And Armstrong wasn't above using the Council's vast network of connections in nearly all sectors of the American power structure to promote the Council's ideas in the U.S. and abroad. One of his contacts was a man named George Kennan. Kennan happened to be friends with George Franklin, the member the Council had chosen to study the Soviet situation. Kennan was on a sabbatical from government work after the war and was doing some research on what he believed would be a further rise of communism. Kennan saw the USSR as a nation that was fueled by unrestricted expansionism. He envisioned a future in which they would conquer or influence countless other smaller countries. He feared they would become a new, unstoppable empire. He met with Franklin and a small study group inside the council in 1947. There, Kennan laid out his ideas in detail. In order to combat communism across the globe, the United States needed to implement a policy called containment. Containment would work exactly as it sounds. Think of a wildfire burning out of control. That's how Kennan viewed communism. He insisted the United States and its allies would have to push back against its expansion. The U.S. would need to assist in minor conflicts abroad. And more importantly, they would need to win a war over the hearts and minds of the world. He believed the United States had a moral superiority and would win in the end. Franklin was taken by what he was hearing and became convinced that Kennan needed to publish his thoughts in foreign affairs. But Kennan knew as a government official he'd be admonished by the current administration for publishing the article. It's not that they wouldn't have agreed, but it could have been seen as an official view of the administration. Kennan did, however, figure that he was able to write the article under a pseudonym. In 1947, Foreign Affairs printed an article called The Sources of Soviet Conduct by a person only referred to as X. We can't understate how important this article was to the United States foreign policy. Before this paper was published, the term containment had never been used in relation to communism. 
It's no secret that the spread of communism was a threat to the bankers and businessmen in the council. The USSR had shown its unwillingness to trade and interact with the Americans. If their expansion continued, there would be less money to be made. These businessmen had everything to lose if communism spread, and they were always open with their checkbooks to ensure they were in a position to keep it from happening. When you think about how much money was on the line, the idea of corrupted corporate influence isn't so far-flung. The X article took off and was soon in the hands of the most powerful people in the federal government. It was popular in the State Department and was the topic of countless discussions. In 1948, President Truman adopted a policy called the Marshall Plan, named after Truman's Secretary of State, George Marshall. This document followed the outline of the X article almost to a T. At that time after the war, Europe was in shambles, and the United States realized they could gain influence by funding recovery efforts. They could win over the hearts of the people and steer them toward capitalism. Through the Marshall Plan, the United States loaned $12 billion to various European countries to help rebuild their infrastructure. They also sought to stimulate the growth of their economies by eliminating any barriers to trade. While the Council on Foreign Relations didn't have a direct hand in the Marshall Plan's creation, they greatly influenced it. 42% of President Truman's cabinet members were also council members. They were the ones who introduced the president to the X article and pushed him into supporting its strategy. They were the ones who whispered the words containment that would echo for decades to come. And they were only one step away from the top when they saw a bigger opportunity arise. After the signing of the Marshall Plan, the Council formed a study group to focus on the effects of the plan's aid in Europe. One of the group's members was Dwight D. Eisenhower, the former Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. At the time, Eisenhower had no political aspirations and didn't believe that it was his place as a former member of the armed services. Instead, he served as president of Columbia University. It was something different and put him in touch with people he would have never met in the military. These people were East Coast elites with ties to other universities and multinational banks. The kind of people who were members of the Council on Foreign Relations or people they wanted to influence. Despite Eisenhower's unconventional pedigree, he fit right in with the members of the Council. They were thoughtful and patient with him. He never got in a disagreement that couldn't be worked out over a glass of scotch. All of the council members respected what he had done for the country during World War II. He rarely missed a meeting. While he'd traveled all over Europe, only now was he truly getting to understand the continent and economics as a whole. Later, an unnamed member said that, whatever General Eisenhower knows about economics, he has learned at the study group meetings. Another member said, the council served as a sort of education in foreign affairs for the future president. Most importantly, he was eager to learn. Over the next two years, Eisenhower was a sponge and absorbed as much information as he could from the scholars in his study group. Unfortunately for Eisenhower, his time in New York City wouldn't last forever. By December 1950, President Truman asked him to resume his duties in the military. There was a new conflict brewing in Korea, and his country needed him. 
So Eisenhower withdrew from the council and stepped down from his position as the president of Columbia. Eisenhower became the supreme commander of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, a newly formed alliance between 12 countries created in the wake of the Marshall Plan. Its goal? To keep Russia at bay. As supreme commander of NATO, Eisenhower had control over all of the Allied forces in Korea and the rest of the world. The influence the Council on Foreign Relations had on Dwight D. Eisenhower cannot be discredited and helps explain his drastic change of heart during his time at NATO. Despite previously claiming to not want to be President of the United States, in 1952, he announced his candidacy. He picked a young, up-and-coming senator from California to be his running mate, Richard Nixon. A war hero, Eisenhower was loved by the American people, and by the time the general election came around, he seemed to be on his way to easily capturing the presidency. He, of course, had the backing of the council, who saw this election as the next step to gaining control. But even if Eisenhower were to have lost, they had a contingency plan. His opponent, Adlai Stevenson, was also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. The deck was stacked in the council's favor. No matter what, they would finally get a member behind the desk in the Oval Office. On November 4, 1952, Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected President of the United States. He was sworn into office on January 20, 1953. Like Truman before him, Eisenhower picked his cabinet heavily from the council. Forty percent were council members, including Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Then Eisenhower promoted John's brother, Allen, to be the acting director of the CIA. Allen, too, was a council member. Allen Dulles became America's top spy, and the group now had members in the two most powerful positions in the U.S. government. The council was also still connected with wealthy New York elites, who would directly benefit from some of Eisenhower's stated goals. He once said, Therefore, the objective of tax reduction is an absolutely essential one. The Council on Foreign Relations now had more control than ever before. They had connections to the president and the head of the CIA. If their members saw the council as their highest loyalty, they could access confidential information, lower their taxes, or drop an atomic bomb. While they claimed to be nonpartisan, they may have had a darker agenda. They wanted to help place the United States at the top of the New World Order, an order in which they, the rich and powerful, would pull the strings. What may have started out as a well-intentioned study group had morphed into an all-powerful organization. We can't confirm these intentions, but it's clear how the rumor started. And Eisenhower's next move only fanned the flames. Eisenhower gave $2 billion in aid to the French-backed government in Vietnam, and he sent U.S. soldiers to train South Vietnamese fighters. He did this to help fight back against mounting rebel communist forces, something past administrations had been reluctant to do. While President Roosevelt had taken advice from the council, he refused to help the French in Vietnam on principle. He was staunchly opposed to imperialism of any kind. 
But now, the council had one of their own in command and could turn the tides of war. Eisenhower's actions were actually less severe than actions the council reportedly wanted taken, but it set up a domino effect that ensured the United States would be invested in Vietnam for years to come, all following the council's published plans for containment. Even after Eisenhower's two terms concluded, the council still held sway. A young John F. Kennedy, who wasn't part of the group, ran on the ideals of a man of a new era. He wanted to change the world and promised to be unlike any president before him. Yet when he assembled his cabinet, he drew heavily from the Council on Foreign Relations. Their reputation had become stellar, and they were now an inescapable force in the United States government. Many of the men in the council were already brilliant in their own regard, but being admitted to the group was a signal that they were worthy of staffing. At this point, it became apparent they didn't need a man at the top. The council had so much power and clout, they could work just as well behind the scenes. It seemed they were more powerful than the presidency. Perhaps due to the council's influence, during the Kennedy administration, the United States edged closer to a direct conflict in Vietnam. The council couldn't afford to have communism spread in East Asia. And after Kennedy's assassination in 1963, the conflict ramped up. By 1965, under the leadership of Lyndon B. Johnson, the U.S. had 180,000 men on the ground in Vietnam. Would the United States have entered the war if it weren't for the influence of the Council? If containment hadn't been pushed so heavily, how many American men would have lived? We'll never truly know. At the end of the day, it didn't truly matter. South Vietnam fell, and the Soviet Union lived on for decades. It seemed the Council's ideas of containment might have been misguided. It's possible some on the Council lost sight of their once altruistic goal of a better world. But the Council didn't pay it much mind. Losing Vietnam was a speed bump and they still met behind closed doors. Members of the council were still in the president's cabinet making key decisions. They were still in the UN. They had power and were determined to keep wielding it for decades to come, no matter the cost. Coming up, the Council on Foreign Relations continues its quiet influence on the US government. Now the conclusion to the story. The Council on Foreign Relations has been quietly moving behind the scenes of American politics for nearly 100 years, altering the global landscape. They helped to create the UN and steered the United States' involvement in Vietnam as well as Iran. Council member and CIA director Alan Dulles was involved in the coup in Iran in 1953. The CIA helped to depose the democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh after Mossadegh proposed to take away international access to Iranian oil. In his place, the CIA installed a ruthless leader known as the Shah, a monarch who was loyal to the United States. He promised the U.S. access to Iranian oil, an issue that the wealthy members of the Council on Foreign Relations were said to be keeping a close eye on. They didn't care about the consequences. They wanted the resources and money. The Shah of Iran lived in opulence and had people who opposed him killed. 
Obviously, it didn't take long for the Shah to begin to lose the trust of his people. In 1979, he was forced out of power and fled. The new Iranian leadership wanted the Shah to stand trial for crimes against their people, but were unsuccessful in bringing him back to the country. The Shah spent the next few months seeking refuge in different countries, including Egypt and Mexico. He had cancer, and the diagnosis wasn't good. He needed immediate care. The Shah requested to be admitted to the United States for treatment, but President Jimmy Carter refused. He knew how volatile the situation in Iran was. However, Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, publicly pressured President Carter to allow the dying Shah into the United States. Rockefeller and Kissinger hadn't been elected to government seats, but here they held undue influence over international relations. At this point, the Council seemingly didn't care to handle issues diplomatically through the United Nations, even though they helped to create it. The group found the best way to make changes to the global landscape was to be hands-on. They didn't need the UN when they controlled the most powerful country on Earth. All they had to do was put pressure on the president. President Carter finally relented and allowed the Shah into the country in 1979. This move forever changed the landscape of the Middle East and resulted in the Iranian hostage crisis that same year. Even today, Iran and the U.S. have a very tumultuous relationship. In that same decade, a middle-aged George H.W. Bush became a member of the council and climbed the ladder of influence. By 1981, he was the vice president of the United States, and nine years later, he became the president. He was the second member of the council to become the leader of the free world. However, he wasn't the last president associated with the council. Both Presidents Carter and Clinton became members after their terms were over. And it's said President Nixon's opinions on China were heavily influenced by what he read in foreign affairs. Today, the council's been funded by some of the largest corporations in the world, including Google, ExxonMobil, and AT&T. These companies are given exclusive access to the council's studies, an annual corporate conference, and most importantly, to their well-connected members. The same rules apply to individual donors. Donors are able to network and attend special events with influential speakers from all over the world. They might even be able to become members themselves. They can be actors, politicians, hedge fund managers, or financiers, like Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein joined the club and learned unknown amounts of information about government action and was most importantly able to use the club to network. He was able to meet council members like President Bill Clinton. Their meetings might have had a hand in protecting him for so long. Some believe he even had deep state connections, and he knew some of their secrets, meaning they had to keep him safe. Epstein was also able to use these meetings to increase the amount of money he was raking in. And we all know what he was using that money for. He epitomizes the type of club the council had turned into. They no longer cared about brilliance. Instead, they focused on wealth and power. They still had members of the intellectual community, but they were an afterthought, a cover. There have been several times throughout the history of the group that a candidate has been railroaded into the council because they were well-connected. 
While many other members had attended prestigious universities, these applicants had almost no qualifications. Despite this fact, they were admitted into the group, signifying that the Council's philosophical roots had been long abandoned. For close to a hundred years now, the Council has been in control of the most powerful country on Earth and has used it as a weapon to deal with global issues. Today, they have over 5,000 members, some of whom are lifetime members and others who are on five-year fellowships. To become a member, candidates have to be nominated by a current member and have to be seconded by another one. Once they have a nomination, they're judged by the board, who then vote on their inclusion. But with 5,000 members and prominent corporate sponsors, why is it that so many people don't seem to know about the group? Well, the Council has recruited several prominent members of the media into the club to obscure their actions. Since the initial publication of Foreign Affairs, the Council's focus on the media has only increased. A few celebrated television journalists are even members or have been temporary members of their board. At one point, Tom Brokaw, one of the most respected journalists of his time, was a part of the group. If you think about any of the major news networks, odds are one of their hosts or reporters is a part of the Council on Foreign Relations. These reportedly include former CBS host Dan Rather, Maria Bartiromo from Fox News, and George Stephanopoulos from ABC. Because of their media influence, information about the group is often hard to find. Those who do speak about it only share glowing reviews. In modern times, the Council not only has the power to change the landscape of American politics, but they have the ability to do it outside of the harsh public spotlight. Some believe that behind the closed doors of their New York City headquarters, they're still playing a game, and we are all the pieces. Their goal is to be given complete control of the board. According to Senator Ted Cruz, the Council is a part of the New World Order, keen on breaking down capitalism and the United States as a whole. Cruz claims they are furthering a globalist agenda through their involvement with the United Nations. Yet their reported link to events in Iran, outside of the UN, seems at odds with this theory. Others believe that the group is an ultra-conservative club that's actually run by their corporate backers in order to control the world for monetary gain. A group that started out as an idealistic dream that was killed by corporate influence. Regardless of what side on the conspiracy spectrum you land on, there's one clear through line for the Council on Foreign Relations. No matter how many new voices are added to the group, or generations that pass, they gravitate toward power. The next time an election's coming up, you might want to take a look into who you're voting for and where their allegiances truly lie. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the Council on Foreign Relations, amongst the many sources we used, we found Peter Gross's book, Continuing the Inquiry, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 